David, how you doing? I'm doing good, relatively. Oh, relatively. What? What do you mean? Well, I'm a little raspy. Uh, my better half, Michelle, uh, has a little touch of something, and yeah, we're hoping it's not the you know the thing. You sound no perfectly normal to me. Okay. Well, thanks, Dave. So I'm. How are you in, doing? Uh, I'm good. Yeah. I'm in uh, Ojai, where it was 107 degrees yesterday, in according oh, to my analog what? temperature gauge. Yeah. 107. 107, correct. Wow. Well, and you, it's, uh, you're in Ketchikan, where it's I'm in Ketchikan. 70, 65-ish today, which is a great day. And uh, the Humpies are in the creek, and there's already been oh. a showdown with a bear in my driveway. Really? Wait, wait. Humpies? Yeah. I thought Humpies are like the last salmon run. I, I'm so confused. Well, yeah. Well, they're they're showing up. They're uh, It's the end of they're July. they're in September. No, no, those are cohos coming oh. in September, you know, yeah, late August. But the Humpies, it's their turn. The Kings have had their day. Right. Kings are first, as they are, you know, should be. Right. And now there are pink salmon jumping in the harbor, making their way up to their, the their harbor, final resting place. Is that a Brooklyn place. accent? <laughs> yeah, it was a little harbor there, you know. Yeah. Oh, harbor. So, oh, Boston. Yeah, harbor. Harbor, harbor right. in the harbor. So right. I'm from back east, you know, so right. hey. So fantastic paleontological news. Rocking my world, man. I heard yeah. about it through the grapevine and it was like, what? Tell yeah. them, Dave. Tell well, them. First of all, there was one of the greatest discoveries is the fighting dinosaurs, which well, is yeah. Was that a baby T-Rex and or a smaller T-Rex? No, 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 no. It was a protoceratops and a right. velociraptor. And a velociraptor. Locked, locked in Mortal Combat from Mongolia. Right. So they so that was they very were... famous. Buried yeah. in a sand dune or something like that. And yeah. they're literally locked in time, as our previous guest, Deed Lomax, would say. Yeah. And so this latest find, which is funny, it was discovered in 2012, and it took all this time to prepare and describe it. 11 years later, it that is, is crazy. A, yeah. It is a... It yeah, well, a, it's a Cetacosaurus being attacked by a mammal, a badger-like mammal called Repenomammus robustus. Yeah, and the cool part is that the Repenomammus is biting the ribs of the Cetacosaurus. Yeah, and, and his hand is wrapped around the lower jaw of the, uh, like the beak of the Cetacosaurus. You can say it, Dave, Cetacosaurus. Cetacosaurus. It's a silent P. It's kind of like a ceratopsian. It's like a, a relative of the triceratops, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Ceratopsian. Early ceratopsian. And so this repetomamus is what? Like a, a, a mole or what? No, it's badger it's size. Oh, badger yeah. size. It's badger size. It's a badger. So, you know, like a wolverine will sometimes take down like a okay. caribou. It's sure. known to happen. Sure. So this is a smaller animal. There might have been a pack of them, Oh, you know. Think about them as like ah. wild dogs taking down a big zebra or something Never like that. Never thought of that. So, you know, a whole little pack of these repetal mammoths, uh, you know, attacking the uh, satacking, or I should, well, well ah, I couldn't help myself. Satacking. Satacking. <laughs> the satacosaurus and taking it down. And we talked about satacosaurus on a previous episode with uh, Tom K., your pal. Oh, right. 
And that's where they have such, well, there there was, they put the laser lights on it, you know, and the fossil, and they could see the, like the feathery tail and actually even the color pattern on the animal. So they're able to figure out the color of this attackosaurus. So now this badger-like mammal attacking one is pretty spectacular. It's from China. I guess it's going to stay in China. Took 11 years to study it. They wanted to make sure everything was right, but I guess it was buried in a volcanic mud flow, like instantaneous. Right, like a Pompeii style. Yeah. So my question is, this is like a moment in time. How do you know they weren't like friends and just having a friendly wrestle? Well, I'm sure the scientists (laughs) went through every scenario they could. And so in In fact, they did. They said there were no bite marks on it, so it wasn't scavenging. Yeah, didn't die just like nearby and get buried on top. It is literally wrapped around uh, the yeah. the dinosaurs. We will have links to this in uh, this episode's show notes yeah. at paleonerds.com. It just kind of goes against the whole uh, story that we've always, you know, thought about is that, you know, dinosaurs died out and then the mammals took off, you know. Uh, so dinosaurs, you know, their reign, they're the terrestrial dinosaurs, their reign ends at 66 million years ago. And then the mammals really start to flourish. Well, that is that is the case, but it's not like the mammals were just sitting around being, hiding, uh, you know, cowering. hiding, cowering in the shadow of these no, of these were, big dinosaurs. They were they were in the they game. Were badass man. Yeah, man, they were badass, badass <laughs> badgers. I you know, kind of feel like I, I feel a little better now that our mammals kind of were fighting back. <laughs> That's true. Maybe you know we could think of it more like a you know a raccoon, so from Guardians of the Galaxy or something. Oh, These right. evil little right. raccoons taking on the the Cetacosauruses. So, anyways, cool. cool story, so yeah. remarkable, and that is the cool thing about the fossil record. You never know what's going to be found know. next. And man. that also leads to the idea that there could be twenty other fossils like this in preparation right now that we won't know about for another ten years. Yeah, there might be somebody listening to this show, like going, ah, well, wait till this one springs out there. That's right. So our guest today is someone that you were like, oh, he's an artist and I love him. (laughs) I'm like, oh, come on, Ray, not another artist. And then I was like, oh, my God. I kept saying, yeah, Yeah, well, not only did I just was blown away by his work, but I realized it was his art that inspired me to partly go deep dive down into paleontology because it was the cover art that he did of dinosaur heresies the robert bacher there it is right there in fact i'll hold it up too there it is (laughs) (laughs) tell us about who this gentleman is and let's get him on the phone well the thing is that john gurchie is our guest uh and i've known him for mm, almost 30 years i guess but i knew about his stuff but yeah, he's been kind of, you know, in the background for a lot of people, but his art is just so riveting. When you see it, it's like, oh, but I'm the kind of guy, like, who did that? So I drilled down on that. Then I was lucky enough to meet him at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science back in 99 or thereabouts, and then a few times since then. And he is a major artist. Uh, I, and he's a scientist, too. I would yeah. argue that he is a scientist. He completely blurs the line between art and science. He's known for early on for his dinosaur art, and he influenced. Well, he had four stamps with the U.S. Postal Service. Four stamps, and uh, he was an advisor on uh, Jurassic Park, the first films. What's that? What's that? Well, it's this little movie that came out a little while back, and some of his paintings were so iconic that you know Spielberg noticed them, and one of them was of a raptor taken down a a, a, in a guanodont. 
right. a group of raptors. So that helped. He's just, like I said, been a huge influence. But then he took a big turn into studying human origins. Right. And Our hominins. Hominins. Can you hominin, hum along? But, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm stuck. Uh, you know what? Stop. Let's just get him on the phone and uh, let's, let's call talk him on the phone. I'm going Gerchie. on about it. John Gurchie, the man, the yeah. human. Yeah. So, yeah, call him up, man. Okay. So excited. Here we go. Hey, Dave, meet John Gurchie, the artist in residence at the Paleontological Research Institution. He is one of the world's leading paleo artists, especially of early hominins. John is a sculptor a painter, a draftsman extraordinaire, and an author, and also a man who blurs the line between science and art. Hey, John. Is that hey there. a good description of you? <laughs> well, it's great, except for that last sentence. So what's, um, what's the deal with the last sentence? Well, there's something that bothers me about blurring the line, because I do both art and science, but I have to be very clear about which I'm doing at any moment in time. Ah. So, for example... Somebody who approaches the same subject, let's say they're reconstructing human ancestors, is just an artist and doesn't know much about anatomy, might do a complete artist's impression, basically. I try not to do that. Um, there are definitely uh, some, some parts of the, the reconstruction of an early hominin that will be speculative, but I try to do it as much as possible by the numbers. And I try to be very aware when I'm straying into the territory of just art. Um, well, you know, now that you put it that way, I guess I'm the guy that blurs the lines. <laughs> you know, you know which you know which lane to stay in. And I really, I'm just all over the place. But you know, uh, well, it's two different styles of art. Yeah, two different styles. I'm a scientific surrealist because I let that art just creep in all the time, and then no, I try to be exact, and then I get a little crazy. But I totally hear what you're saying, but I think Dave has a very important question to ask you. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I'm going to get into your your realism, which is I'm I'm a fan of photorealistic yeah. art. But uh, John, are you a paleo nerd? Well, uh, I, I'm not sure what you need to need for to qualify to join that club. Um, Did you draw dinosaurs as a kid? Yes. Okay. <laughs> He's a nerd. Yeah. He's, you're a nerd. <laughs> so you're one of those guys. I was a dinosaur nerd from day one. And it's interesting, you and I overlap in a number of ways. And one of them is, where are you from, John? I just want to get a little bit into your background, and then we'll dive into the And how you started. Yeah. Tell me, where are you from? I grew up in a suburb of Kansas City. This was on the Kansas side, but it wasn't really close to ah. Kansas City. It wasn't, wasn't Kansas City, Kansas so much as, as a southern suburb. And the great thing about it, was, about growing up there, was that Everything south of us, and I mean everything south of our house, was woods or farmland or lakes or rivers. And I could just, with my brother, ride my bike out into the country and have all these adventures. And that included uh, a lot of exposure to the natural world, both living critters, but also there were fossils everywhere yeah. in stream beds and road cuts. Yeah. So I was... That, you know, there's this all Western Interior out. Seaway fossils, marine. No, no, these are earlier. These are Carboniferous. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, Paleozoic oh. stuff, and and then so I, I have some overlap in Kansas uh, as well. So I went to high school and junior high school there, and you ended up going to the University of Kansas in Lawrence. That's right. Yeah, and you were a geology major, and then you did a master's in in uh, anthropology. 
Yeah, that's right. Biological anthropology. Well, what's kind of mind blowing is that I was reading your book and uh, I was going through this, The Lost Anatomies, and you thank three people. You thank Stanley Kubrick, this guy named Larry Martin, and these are, wait, these are inspirational thank yous, right? Yes, inspirational yeah. thank yous. And uh, Lauren Isley, and I was like, wait a minute, Larry Martin? I had some time with Larry Martin. So when did you overlap with Larry Martin? Larry Martin was the very first paleontologist I ever met, and he critiqued my art, and it was wow. a really mind-blowing. He was very kind to me, and I was just stunned that, like, wow, Larry Martin is one of your the three big He was the one that said, don't quit your day job. Was that the guy? <laughs> yeah. Well, when would that have been? We may have crossed paths. Well, I was in high school in 72, but uh, in 70, it was probably 1971. I ended up doing a semester, a summer semester at Lawrence uh, in theater. So where were you in 71, 72 when Ray was, was meeting oh, Mr. I was Martin? KU. I was there. Yeah. In fact, I, wow. I, I remember passing you in the street, Ray. <laughs> I don't think you looked as old as you do now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we crossed paths at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, but you, you had some time. Larry set you on a path, I guess, of some sort. That's right. Yeah, he was, he was a really great teacher. And I, I appreciated that. He was so enthusiastic. You know, hold up these skulls of saber-toothed cats and almost jump around the room with them. He was so <laughs> excited. So that that was really infectious, and I was grateful. Kubrick. Now, I'm a fan of Kubrick. He is the quintessential cinematographer. What is it about Kubrick's work that inspired you in paleontology? Everything. <laughs> 2001 well, okay. a space odyssey that is my favorite opening scene to any film ever i've seen it 50 60 times me too i would say the same i'll just tell you a little history and culminate with my uh, exposure to kubrick so when i was a kid you know i was interested in anatomy my parents say that i found a mouse skeleton under their bushes and I was trying to put it back together in my old, in my four-year-old way. And, really? And, and, and there were fossils all over the place. I was fascinated by these intricate little patterns that could occur inside of a rock. Yeah. That was so, that was so exciting to me. And so I started collecting fossils and I started building skeletons of animals and basically got really interested in the history of life, the evolution of life. And so at a pretty young age, I started this project to make an evolutionary tree of all life. And, <laughs> and I, had a, I had a motley assortment of books to inform me. I had some of, my, some of my uncle's old college textbooks. I had some books by Romer, the paleontologist. Oh, wow. Right. Um, I had some, some books that, that almost treated a series of living forms as if they were an evolutionary sequence which is kind of a bogus thing to do. But I included that in there. I, I didn't know how, how to really tell the difference. So anyway, I had this project about the history of life. And then I got to be a teenager. Those things subsided a little bit. And well, there's other this things... distraction that happens, yes. Yeah. Yes. Cars and girls. When John, when you did this big family tree project, you were in middle school and you did little clay sculptures is what I read somewhere? I was in various science fairs in grade school doing little clay sculptures. Oh, and, of what? Well, one project was the evolution of turtles. And the, the next project was more ambitious. It was the evolution of vertebrates from, <laughs> but, but, you know, 
I again was, was so guilty cool. of, of I was using living forms as evolution as part of an evolutionary sequence from amphioxus to humans. Wow, it's a big project. <laughs> it is where I could. I had actual specimens and skeletons, and where where I didn't have those, I built clay models of skeletons, and wow. so I went all the way all the way through. Didn't win a blue ribbon for that one. I think they think thought I had too much help from an adult or something. But anyway, studied wow. all that stuff and was really excited about that. And then I became a teenager and uh, there was uh, well girls and rock and roll. Uh, also rock and roll. And I started playing drums in a band. That's right. And You're I, a musician as well. Yep. And I started painting psychedelic posters. This was the 60s. Really? I saw that. I, I do you no have way. any of those? Do you have any of those posters still, John? I do. Man, I would love to see those because I knew <laughs> that was in your DNA too, man. Were they black light posters? Well, people don't realize this about Kansas, and especially Lawrence, Kansas, man. Lawrence, Kansas. You know, I was in Wichita and stuff, and then I went to this little school up in Lindsborg. But uh, Lawrence was always the like it was the hippie uh, paradise of the really? Midwest. And, you wouldn't uh, think that. Yeah, no, you would never think that. Uh, William Burroughs San Francisco, ended up uh, New York. spending his yeah. last years there. It was like a totally hip, just crazy place. And there were psychedelic bands and the police were a big presence there. But man, it was the hippie capital. And I went to every kind of concert up there, John. You and I were probably at a lot of the same concerts during those years. But uh, So how did you go from, from yeah. being a teenager to getting on the cover of the, one of the most iconic paleontological books by Robert Bacher. It was this picture, by the way, I'm holding it up and I'll have a link in our Paleo Nerds episode on you, John. But I found a group of postcards of your art in the 80s. And each card showed dinosaurs with the dappled sunlight in the forest and and kicking up dust and in motion. And it was it was your art that inspired me to dive into paleontology. Oh, that's so great to hear. I love that's hearing true. that. Well, John, you you've been such a huge force in the paleo science world, and uh, your 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 paintings are stunning. They are visions of the past, and the detail is is extraordinary, hyper realistic. It's and photorealism, just, yeah, yeah, photorealism for the past. And so, so you don't. You, how'd you get so good as an artist while you're over there in the science department? Were you hanging out in the art department too, or what? Well, no, but I have to back up because I I only told the story as far as teenagehood. And right. Then I didn't... Okay. There's a transition. Okay. That's what we're asking. Okay. Yeah. Right. So I was a teenager, interested in the usual teenage things, and the, my obsession with the history of life, the evolution of life, really sort of began to fade and take a back seat until the moment I saw. 2001 a space odyssey Aha. and that movie i mean i'm almost embarrassed to admit how much influence that movie had over me but that movie said so eloquently uh, a, a, a few things that hadn't occurred to me and one of them was basically just what a, a bizarre development in the history of life on earth the evolution of human consciousness is or was is we hope yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> that really hadn't occurred to me in the way that it was presented in that movie. And I was just stunned. And suddenly, when I came out of that movie, I knew 
basically two things. I knew I had to study human origins. Wow. Uh, because I realized all this evolutionary stuff I'd been studying applied to this miraculous creature, which was us. So the other thing I knew was that I had to work as an artist. And as I said, I was already painting psychedelic posters and so forth. So I started that summer, the summer after I saw that movie, I started my first human evolution mural in my parents' basement on a long wow. piece of butcher paper. That summer, I think my parents must have thought I was a bum. I failed to find a job at the beginning of the summer. I walked around barefoot all the time, throwing a bone up in the air. And watching, it, <laughs> watching it turn well, into a satellite. Watching it spin against the sky, hoping it would turn into a satellite. Um, wow. The black yes. slab. Wow. Lab, wow. Yeah. yeah. That was really a formative summer for me. I started reading everything I could on human origins and um, painting a lot of stuff, drawing a lot of stuff that had to do with hominins. But, um, you know, so I knew that I wanted to work in paleo art. And when I was in graduate school studying biological anthropology, I took a trip around the country. That was to study. I did my master's thesis on primate, early primate brain evolution. Wow. So I traveled around the country to study fossils in various museums. And each time I would get to a museum, I would also stop in and show my art to the exhibits department. So I did that at the Smithsonian, the American Museum, the Yale Peabody. I think I also did it at a museum in Texas, but that didn't amount to anything. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> so I showed these people my my art and it apparently piqued their interest because not long after that, when I'd finished my master's uh, degree and I had taken over one of my courses for my advisor who was on sabbatical, I got a call from the Smithsonian and they asked me to bid on a project. Really? Yeah. And so I was all set to go. Which, actually, I should say, I, it was kind of surprising looking back because the art that I showed them <laughs> was, this, was this trippy, weird stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I was wondering, you know, were these the psychedelic posters of... You know? <laughs> yeah, they they kind of were. I mean, there was a there was a face in the stars, a tree with eyes. Uh, cosmic, cosmic, mind blowing hippie stuff, man. Yeah, but they yeah. must have been anatomically correct for the Smithsonian to take notice. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> but you, but it's the science that's driving you around. So that's really this really this confluence of the art and science and which lane to be in. But it was a science that was taking you to these museums. Like, oh, by the way, I've got this art and some of these scientists via the exhibits department but what was the bid what was the smithsonian yeah what was project? that project yeah that was uh, a project doing a mural to back up a diorama and it was a devonian scene so it was about the transition to land uh, before i even knew that i got that job i worked all summer painting houses and making little money at the end of the summer i moved to dc i hadn't gotten the job yet I, moved, I was just determined to make it work. I had $500 in my pocket and a broken down Volkswagen. I moved to DC and, and got the cheapest rental I could and starved for a little while while I waited for them to, to decide whether, whether my bid would be accepted. And it was. Wow. And so that kind of started my time at the Smithsonian. Wow. Of course, I painted it on site. And that was important because I met so many of the curators and scientists and so forth at the Smithsonian and um, and of course got to know the exhibits people well that led to the second job there which was the Tower of Time 
the Tower of Time, an awesome What's that? painting. I don't know that. It's a really cool painting. And is it uh, like uh, the solar system origins to the present? Kinda, John. It was the first the first cell to the present. Right. And right. It was you know to put it in perspective, if I had done the whole history of life, there would have been seven more time columns underneath it. Right. Towers of Time. But I started with the first cell and the first, I had a Volvox in there as a, as a colonial form. Right. Uh, and then it was, you know, it went all the way to the top 30 feet above. Yes, 30 and, feet. It goes through a couple wow. floors. And was so there a man on the moon uh, like they have in uh, the Griffith Observatory? They have something very similar. Oh, yeah. No, no man on the moon, except at the top, there are three modern faces and also the earth. And that's kind of the very top as a scorched remnant of humanity. It, we died, we all died out. It wasn't, it wasn't quite scorching yet. <laughs> <laughs> it was starting maybe. I just had a quick question, uh, John, as an aside here. Did you meet Jay Maternus or interact with Jay uh, oh, yeah. when you were at the Smithsonian? Yeah, and that, that story is kind of funny. I don't know if you want to hear it. We just interviewed him a couple of episodes ago. You talked to him? Yeah, we did a great interview with Jay and oh, uh, shared a lot of his art, and people just went nuts for it. And uh, yeah. When I first got that bid from the Smithsonian, I wrote Jay Maternus, and I was trying to figure out how this all works. You know, can you, can you actually make a life doing this, et cetera? And I didn't hear back. I didn't hear back. I moved to D.C. And then I was I was talking to my mother on the phone and she said, oh, you've got a letter from a Jay Maternus. And I said, no way. oh, wow. He finally wrote back. So she opened it and read it to me. And it was the most discouraging letter. What? I could have imagined. <laughs> no. Yeah. Get a and, real job. Yeah. It was like, you can't make a living doing this. Don't even try etc and you know I, all i could say was i'm glad i didn't get that you know before i left um, <laughs> because by the time by that time i was i was neck deep in it you know and then a couple of years later i heard that jay was coming in to dissect an orangutan and i really wanted to be part of that and i tried to talk him into letting me do the face he had to do it fairly quickly because the people wanted the space in the freezer at the Smithsonian. And so, no, he didn't let me do the face, but I got to kind of help out and hold the arms out while he was cutting into them and so forth. Does that take place in a cold room? Does it have to be cold? And Let's see. I'm trying to remember whether this, this one was in formalin or not. I can't oh, really right. remember. But so I don't it's in remember some sort of formaldehyde. It's in, it's in a preservative. Yeah. Yeah. I think wow. so. Then we all went to lunch and... Everybody was talking as we went around the table. Everybody was talking about just kind of introducing themselves and talking about what they were into, what they were doing. So when it got to me, I said, I'm trying to do what he does, pointing to Jay. And he immediately launched into almost the same speech that was in the letter. <laughs> it's tough, kid. You're not going to make it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, you know, he set the bar up there, but yeah. But But I... I really admire his work a lot, and uh, and and the fact that he does a lot of dissection, which I later did. I tried to take it a little farther than he did with really intricate facial dissections of all species of great apes and humans. Your your art on dinosaurs is prolific. I mean, I've seen so many fantastic illustrations and paintings. 
but why the switch from dinosaurs to hominids? Yeah. It seems like your yeah. career took a right turn, and that's yeah. what you were originally interested in. That's what I was originally interested in, but hominin work wasn't really available when I, I mean, Jay Maternus was right in a way. It wasn't really available uh, when I got to DC. The Smithsonian wasn't doing anything on, on human origins. And when I approached National Geographic and many other doors, they would say, well, oh, we use Jay Maternus for that. And so, <laughs> so I couldn't really get in the door. I mean, I would have done hominins initially right off the bat. So I had to bide my time and do dinosaurs. And and I love I love dinosaurs. I love yeah, going to the Mesozoic. Yeah. It's it's like a it's like an exotic vac vacation going to the Mesozoic. I don't consider myself an uh, an expert, but I do listen to the experts. Each of those paintings is heavily informed by talking with experts and getting their take on exactly the behaviors I was illustrating and the you know, basically the anatomy and the. But your use of light is is phenomenal. Yeah, you... I'm just curious, oh, John. When, when you when you do a painting, and and I'd heard this anecdotally, maybe via Gary Staub or someone like that, that you to get that lighting that Dave's alluding to is that you would actually build sort of small sculptures and light them so that you could really study what was happening. Is it's that Vermeer like? Well, thank you. And that is what I do. And there's kind of a funny story associated with that Bacher cover. You want to hear that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I had made models of the two dinosaurs, which were Displetosaurus and Styracosaurus. And I wanted to kick up some dust and photograph them with all this yeah. dust flying around. Yeah. And so I went down into my basement with an air compressor and a bunch of dust that I had gathered from a baseball diamond. Wow. And... It was very hot, so I took <laughs> off everything except for my underwear. And, <laughs> and then a friend of mine came over and knocked on the door, but I couldn't hear him. So he came into the house and came, eventually came down the stairs, and there was all this dust flying around, and this guy in his underwear blowing dust all over these dinosaurs and photographing it. And that was, that was my preparation for that piece. Well, it <laughs> was successful because that so you, is yeah. an amazing, amazing painting. Is that done in acrylics? Acrylic paint? Yes. And you actually, some of these are, you know, I've looked at the dimensions, uh, are pretty small paintings you meticulously paint. But then if you're using acrylic and then you're talking about that dust, how do you paint dust in acrylics? Yeah, very carefully. Looks like, looks like yeah. airbrush. Yeah, those paintings take a while to do. And so I'm doing these constant little little washes to add up to that dust and very subtle washes. And then I go over it again and then I go over it again. And, and I uh, washes, um, I'm guessing a lot of water and a little pigment. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It's yeah. sort of like glazing and oil paint. So it's right. a similar yeah. kind of thing where you build it up. Well, cool. Uh, shall we veer into our Hominins? human origins? Because sure. <laughs> well, your sculptures are in the Smithsonian in the hall of time. And Hall of Human Origins, actually. Oh, is that what it's called? Yeah. Now, your hominin sculptures are your best guess of the most accurate representation of not only what species look like, but what that individual's appearance could actually be. So my question is, are, are your sculptures peer-reviewed by other artists and, and or scientists, or are the likenesses just a personal best guess? My sculptures are often reviewed in when they're in progress by scientists. But there, honestly speaking, there are no other artists that take it to this level. I mean, the other artists that are my main competitors 
one pair went to art school and one woman came from film school. They can do fantastic art and they use some anatomical stuff. I mean, I've seen pictures of their progress occasionally, but I think they, they're not, <laughs> I don't know how to say this tactfully. Oh, <laughs> well, they're, basically they're, you're let, the only one doing this then. Well, taking it to this level. I right. mean, nobody has done five adult gorilla dissections and 20 bonobo and chimp dissections and, you know, an yeah. equal number of humans and all that kind of stuff. I was able to visit you there at the uh, Paleontological Research Institution where you're at the artist in residence. And I, I came into your studio and I was just simply stunned, uh, John. I was in awe, of course, but there were casts, there were skeletons, there were, I don't know oh, if there were actually faces words, everywhere. <laughs> but you you take, so when you talk about your process of reconstructing our, our ancient human relatives, our, our, our ancestors, you are exactly measuring muscle attachments. You have studied every living ape and attachment points. Well, and forensic pathology is what it, it is. is forensic. Are, you are bringing the dead back to life as carefully and as scientifically and, as you can. Um, but then there's a point, too, where you do, and I think that's what Dave was alluding to. Well, yeah, you that, have to put in expression. You have to put in, yeah. uh, an, uh, if the eyes are not correct, it looks, that, you know, that uh, lazy eye makes a sculpture look dead. And if the yeah. eyes aren't the proper placement in the skull and around the eyelids i know because i i built puppets um yeah the, the sculpture looks dead and your sculptures look alive like it's a, a photograph even though they're 3d i spend a week on that you are giving the uh the sculpture that you've done a soul a personality yeah and so we can make an emotional connection with it as a viewer you look right. at this and this face and you you resonate with it I'm glad it strikes you that way. That that is super important, and that is strictly the province of the artist. It's it's got, I mean, the size of the eyeballs and all that, and their position in the in in the eye sockets and all that. That's based on scientific information. But making this soul that looks back at you, there has to be a presence there. And if you don't succeed in that, you might as well not have done the whole rest of the face. If you can't make it live in the eyes, and so I spend a week just setting the eyes and and, I, and looking at them and going out and getting a fresh look the next morning, and oh, that needs to come in a little bit and so forth. Yeah. So yeah, I know that. That's exactly so important. Do you use orange peel for skin texture, as no. as they do in the special effects? How do you get all the pores? I use um, casts of humans for that. And really? Oh. Also, casts vape faces, and I make latex peels from those. And you stipple it? Yep. Wow. Yeah. And my other question about these sculptures in the Smithsonian how do you choose something that's going to have 10, 20, 50 years longevity? What are the materials that you use for longevity? Basically, I use silicone, a, a type of silicone that can be tinted any color and made any luster and also have any degree of translucence so I can control all that. This is a silicone that that lasts over time and is resistant to heat and stuff like that. So the eyeballs are acrylic eyes. I used to make them myself. I made all the Smithsonian figures with my own eyes, but I found some really good eyeball makers. It saves me a lot of headaches. It's a intensive process and only about half of them come out, at least with my level of skill. <laughs> So I used to make my own eyeballs and, and, you know, half of them wouldn't work out and they'd go in the Halloween box. 
Yeah. Um, and you have so. to have the the capillaries too, the, just oh, yeah. right on the sides of the eyes. Yeah, it's an yeah. incredible process. You have to make one part and then fuse that onto the next part and then fuse the next part onto that. And each step has to has to work perfectly or you have to throw it out. So with a lot of our uh, human ancestors, there's they're hairy, hair all over <laughs> them. And I remember reading somewhere that you use black bear hair for... That's right. For the more primitive ones, I do. Ray said you had a Lucy that melted once because you used oh, the yeah. wrong... Okay, wrong... this is getting back to materials. Um, <laughs> I had a fork in the road at one point. Yeah. Uh, and I, I could have either gone with silicone or I could have gone with soft urethane. I did some tests with silicone and it kept sticking to the mold. And I thought, okay, I better do use urethane. Big mistake. So I made a Lucy figure for the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And Lucy is the iconic leaky Australopithecus. Yeah, it's not a leaky find. Oh. It's, it was discovered by Don Johansson and his team. Well, thank you for the clarification. Oh, sure. Why did I assume leaky was part of Lucy? Well, because Lucy's the most famous fossil and Leakey's the most famous right. fossil hunter. I, I, I've talked to other people who've made that same mistake. But anyway, Lucy is an iconic fossil. She lived about 3.2 million years ago. She's an Australopithecus, and it was the first time that we had found anything like a fairly complete skeleton of an Australopith. So we could determine all of a sudden their body proportions, and that was a big deal. We could be fairly confident about building an outline of her body. And so really, this is the first time uh, a really early hominid could be reconstructed. And the reason I use black bear hair is because this needs to look like fur, um, possibly like great ape fur. That would be our nearest guess. But, you know, we don't know for sure. But this it needs to look like fur and cut human hair does not look like fur. Hmm. If you punch in bear hair with tapered ends, you can really get it to look like fur. We don't know how much uh, body hair Lucy had. I mean, her ape ancestors presumably had a full coat of body hair, like like all of the apes we know about. And we also know that at the two million mark, humans probably lost their coat of body hair. And that's because at that point, we became adapted as a long distance traveler, both endurance running and long distance walking. We were out there in the open in, in many cases. We needed to sweat. Well, sweat, the enhanced sweat gland cooling system that humans use to, to cool themselves does not work with a full coat of hair. Oh, so it's a trade-off. So, you know, the less hair you have, the better you can adapt it to heat. Yep. Heat so climates. the consensus is that humans lost their, their body hair. We don't know how hairy the critters in between were, the, let's say the australopiths. I've just completed a, a Lucy figure for the Institute of Human Origins. She has a coat of body hair that's somewhere between. It's not as thick as, let's say, a chimpanzee, um, but it's certainly not as, as sparse as a human. With the black bear hair, how many hairs do you put into a figure like Lucy? Almost all of them are done one at a time. In really thickly haired areas like the back of the head, you can get away with groups. But I, I tried to figure this out, and I came up with somewhere between 200,000 and 500,000 individual hairs. Wow. So 
my God. So are and is that you or is that you and yeah, the, you your team of contract? Yeah. You bring in your teenage friends or something? Or... Actually, I have done that. <laughs> yeah. In fact, there was one time when um, I, I found an artist in town who could actually do that and make it look good. And oh. so there was a time when I went on a vacation, a family vacation in Florida, while he was back here in, in the freezing <laughs> Trumansburg, New York, while, while the snow fell down, punching hair one at a time. So I occasionally thought of him while I was playing with my kids in the sea <laughs> wow. back there with the, with the wind whipping around the corners of my studio, punching hairs one at a time. I, I have an anatomical question. Yeah. Why does Homo heidelbergensis, or gensis or gensis? How do you pronounce uh, it? Hard G. Okay. Heidelbergensis. Why does yeah. Homo heidelbergensis have that massive brow ridge compared to all of our hominin ancestors? Is there any morphology as to the reason why it, it has that prominent jutting out? Yeah, there are a number of ancestors that have big brow ridges, but I think you're right. I think the biggest ones are found on some of the Homo heidelbergensis skulls. There have been a number of theories that have been put forward for what that's all about. One of them was basically just bizarre development in the history of life on Earth. Head budding? <laughs> What's that? For head budding. No. No. Bar fights. <laughs> when the front of the mouth is used as a clamp, so they're gripping things with their front teeth or they're straightening spears with their front teeth or whatever they're doing, using their, their teeth as a clamp, uh, that generates a lot of force that it might bend the skull a bit. And so to resist that sort of, those sort of bending forces, the, this, the brow ridge is thought to absorb some of the, that force. Is there and, dentition wear to show that uh, they were using their teeth for clamping stone tools yes. or wood? Yep, yep. There is. Oh. Yeah. Uh, that shows that they were using their their teeth, their front teeth in unusual ways. We can't always tell what it is. Some of it looks like uh, the wear on modern populations that process skins with their teeth. Right. And, you, mean uh, chew, well, you mean chewing leather or holding uh, leather skin? Either one. And I'm speaking of front teeth, so I'm sure. thinking more of holding it as a clamp. For example, if you hold a piece of leather in your teeth and then you want to make perforations, make holes in it, that might be a, a way of doing that. And how many thousand years does this brow ridge appear and then vanish as a result yeah. of an evolutionary adaptation? Homo erectus first appears at 2 million years ago. That's the oldest known Homo erectus material. There are early Homo skulls going back further, but not they don't have the big brow ridges. Homo erectus is characterized by a fairly large brow ridge, and that goes all the way through to... Homo heidelbergensis, and then later descendants like Neanderthals, they have fairly large brow ridges. And also this newly discovered critter known as the Harbin cranium. And there's a story behind that. And what is that? What's a Harbin cranium? Yeah, what's that? The story that everybody knows about is uh, enchanting enough. And that is that there was, I think it was 1923, there was a bridge crew working in China. Oh, yeah. And working along this river. And one of the workers found this skull, uh, apparently noted that it was an unusual skull, as it is, and took it home. And as Japanese forces were preparing to take over the, re the region where he lived, he wrapped it in a coat and hid it in the well right. on his property. Wow. He didn't tell anybody about it until his, he was on his deathbed in 2018. He told his, I think it was his grandchildren, 
And they went to the well, got this skull out, and here's this massive skull, very complete. They turned it over to the scientists, and it was revealed as this brand new thing. It's not a Denisovian, is it? What is it? Denisovian. Oh, well, okay. So some people have proposed that this is a Denisovan, the first okay, one. Okay, how do you say it. that? Denisovan? Well, Denisovan's probably more more close right. to the... That's what I say, Denisovan. Okay. okay. Well, I'll start saying that too. <laughs> okay. You say tomato, I say erectus. <laughs> Let me ask this, though. Is this Peking man? I mean, no. that's another creature altogether. Peking man, and this is also true of Java man, are both considered homo erectus now. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah, they're... They're subsumed into that name, and so this is something completely different. It's it's not it's definitely not a Neanderthal, but it's got this massive face. It's got huge brow ridges, a very wide face, wide uh, dental arcade. And what's the um, dating on it? The dating it, that they've got so far, they're proposing so far that it's at least one hundred and forty-six thousand. Well, that's recent. That's interesting. So actually, one of the things that I think is mind-blowing is our genus is Homo. Yeah. At one time, we are the last species alive, right? And we either bred our competition away. John, how many species of Homo in the genus Homo were alive at the same time? Well, I mean, it depends on which time you're talking about. But let's let's go for the time when Homo sapiens originated. So this is the time of the oldest known Homo sapiens material 300,000 years ago. Which is us. Yeah, which is us. There were at least five and probably six other species alive at that time. Wow. Well, there's our species, Homo sapiens. There's the species we, we evolved from, which is Homo heidelbergensis. Homo erectus was still hanging on in parts of Asia. So that was still there. Homo naledi was at that time in Africa, South Africa. Homo luzonensis, another island species like, like Floresiensis, was um, that lineage, although we haven't found fossils from exactly that age, that lineage had presumably split off by that time. And so had Homo floresiensis. So you have all these, all these species already inhabiting the planet when we originated. So where did the brow ridge dissolve? Uh, or, and, and Homo... Sapiens 300,000 years ago didn't have brow ridges. So was it an intermingling? Uh, was it a how did how did the brow ridge vanish and in how long a time did it take for that to happen? Yeah, I'm not sure I can answer that precisely, but if you look at some of the earliest known Homo sapiens fossils, they do have fairly respectable brow ridges. They're not, they're not the massive ones you see in the, the Harbin cranium or in some Homo heidelbergensis, but, but they do have fairly big brow ridges by today's standards. Right. And you can see that in a skull or composite skull that's 300,000 years old. You can see it in material that's 200,000 years old. The hair toe cranium, which is, I think, 165, still has fairly big brow ridges. And there's a, there's a general evolutionary trend within Homo sapiens where the body gets more delicate. That's presumably oh. the result of an increasing replacement of things we do physically with things we do culturally. Better quality of life as well. That's true too, but inventing tools that will help us um, do things that formerly were done by brute, brute force. That, brute force, right. right. That's thought to be 
important in our delicatization. Well, you know, I, I'm just thinking, uh, just in following on that, and of course there's a pun involved. Uh -oh. um, I think about, you know, you were talking about brows being shock absorbers, you know, and- Well, it's more like a fulcrum uh, an adaptation to a lever yeah, fulcrum. Yeah, but I'm also thinking that maybe it's, you were talking about headbutting. I was thinking this really brings up the term brow beating. It sure does, Ray. Oh, man. <laughs> it sure does, but it doesn't relate. Okay. It doesn't relate. But it, but anyways, it, the diversity is stuck. I've got a snare drum right here. Okay, good. In your YouTube video, Human Origins 2, you talk about a stone tool cut marks on a 600,000-year-old skull from Ethiopia that indicates someone removed the flesh off its face, possibly indicating funerary practices. Could those cut marks have been dinner? Well, I suppose it's possible. We just don't know at this point. Yeah. I think there are a lot of scientists who, who view it to be more likely some sort of ritual, symbolic behavior. Rather than for eating. Well, no, even if it was eating, it was probably some form of ritual cannibalism. You can't get much nutrition from a face, you know? <laughs> Unless you're really hungry, I guess. Yeah. 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 The people who published that, they walk right up to saying it's a funerary practice without actually saying that. Right. I think they say something in the last of their paper, like uh, further discoveries will shed light on. Yeah, they, I think what you mentioned was it says it shows some sort of cultural. Cultural behavior. Yeah. John, with all these species that were in our genus Homo, you must think a lot about how we interacted with those other species. Do you, and I know that there's evidence we interbred with Neanderthals, do you think we were at war with these other species? Did are, Were we the destroyer species? It's tempting to think so, looking at how we treat people unlike ourselves today. Right. It's tempting to think that we... Um, drove other species to extinction, maybe in a, in a warlike way or a violent way. But there's, as far as I know, the evidence for violence in human history is not very plentiful. There are hmm. really only a few, a few skulls that look like, like they were bashed. And there's one Neanderthal skeleton with a notched rib from a spear. And hmm. actually, a paper was published on that specimen saying that this had to be Cro-Magnon or a Homo sapiens throwing the spear, and so it had to be interspecies violence. But I think the I think that's overstepping the evidence. Yeah, because the guy that... could have fallen on his own spear or running through well, the forest. Maybe. Shot himself in the foot. That's based on the <laughs> supposition that yeah. partly that, that Neanderthals only had thrusting spears, and so if it came from above, as it appears to have been, come from, then it must have been thrown by a Homo sapiens. But I, I think the evidence for limiting Neanderthals in that way is probably not very strong. I think they probably had throwing, throwing spears. I mean, we have Homo heidelbergensis-associated spears that go back much further than that, and they're weighted like javelins. Right. Wow. Are they atlatls, or are they uh, no. with a throwing stick? Before atlatls. Right. In fact, I don't think any atlatls have been discovered even with Neanderthals. I think that's, that's a more so recent... far just a Homo sapiens thing. Right. Well, I think when you talk about the extinction of other species, you talk about competition, obviously. And you might look, some people have suggested that 
there were some things as sophisticated as Neanderthals are turning out to be in their making art and in their hunting and all that. They may have lacked some things that Homo sapiens are characterized by. And one one of the things I'm thinking of is that Homo neanderthalensis used to apparently live in extended family groups. There's no evidence of larger get-togethers. So with Homo sapiens, you have them making this portable art and you have artistic motifs that go over long distances, people that can't possibly have known each other. And so the suggestion is that there's a similar ideology or perhaps religion being represented by this portable art. And that if you are a, let's say you're a seaside When you say group, portable art, you mean symbolism? Yes. I, well, I mean, I mean carvings. Carvings, right. Yeah. right. Sculptures that seem to have a symbolic component, according to this theory, that basically, if you were a seaside group, and you had as part of your ideology the lion-headed man, and you were in trouble in some way and had to leave your homeland, you could go to an inland group that had never seen you, but once they saw your symbols, once they saw your portable art, maybe they had the lion-headed man also, and they would, the idea, wow. they would take you in and help you. And the, the idea is that Homo sapiens are adapting to the landscape as this big network, and it's sort of, it's sort of fluid. The Netflix film, did you watch? Yeah, what do you think about the end of it with those symbols? With the marks. The marks on there. Yeah, the marks that they were making. What... Is that accidentally made by the cave uh, installing the lighting? Or is that actually, <laughs> what, what do you think, the hash marks? I think you have to talk to the experts about that, yeah. including yeah. the ones that, that dispute it. Or yeah. that think that there's not enough evidence to establish sure. engravings and burials and fire in the cave. Right. Hmm. There's a lot of debate in yeah. the paleoanthropological world, is there not, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's, that's what's right. great about science, and that's why we love it. Ray, do you have an important question to ask? It's not for the faint of heart. Oh, yes, I do. Why, yes, I do. Hey, okay, I guess we got it. we're got getting to the wrap-up point here, but uh, hey, John, if you could go back in time, what exciting epoch, what perfect period, what exquisite era would you go back to, and what would you want to see does it have to be just one just one and then we'll give you a you know a second one if you want we'll give you a second yeah we'll give you a second but number one then number two right well i would go back to the time of early homo erectus because some of the early homo erectus skulls show that that in many ways their brains were still ape-like and some of the later homo erectus skulls show a humanization and so I'd like to go back to that time when our bodies had pretty much gotten to be human looking, but our brains had some catching up to do. So I'd like to see what that critter behaves like, what its social behavior looks like. So that would probably be my first choice. Wow. And your second choice? Second choice would be Australopithecus. I want to see what those creatures were like, although I might be disappointed. They may be I may watch them for a week and decide they're only basically their in their behavior and their cognition, et cetera. They, they're only like bipedal apes. That reminds me, though, of a fantastic scene. Have you ever seen the uh, Luke Besson movie, Lucy? No. Oh, yes, I have seen that. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's a scene where out of the mayhem, she somehow goes back yeah. in time and meets Lucy. 
Australopithecus right. Lucy. All right. And and there's this fantastic moment where they acknowledge each other's existence. Have you seen this, Ray? No, I'm not. I've got to check this Highly out. Highly recommend. Oh, I love Luke Besson. Well, I'm just going to say that, John, if there's anyone who's actually given us a glance at what Lucy looked like, it's you. Oh, well, thank you. you. It's you. Thank you. Yeah. So you, when you go back in time, you want to see if you got it right. Yeah, you know? that's right. And then <laughs> yeah. I have to come back. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Back to the present <laughs> and change everything. It's, yeah. it's going to take me another 20 years. Yeah. And I have a, a final question to kind of wrap us all up here. John, your body of work, your painting, sculptures, is the style of art that is realism. You're depicting what could arguably be, you know, actual scenes from millions of years ago. And it's my favorite kind of art, as I'm a fan of photo realism and landscape art. And yours is truly exceptional and breathtaking. Well, and, and it got me excited about paleontology after seeing this cover, of which we're going to do a screenshot of Dinosaur Heresies by Bob Bacher. So my question is, how do you think your art has changed the general public's perception of dinosaurs and or our hominin ancestors? Well, okay, let's take dinosaurs first. I'm not sure I can claim to have changed very much. Basically, I listen to the experts and I do what they tell me to do. And when I started painting dinosaurs, there weren't a lot of painters that were doing sort of action scenes where you're down on the ground where you'd be if you were a human watching a couple of dinosaurs tangle and kicking up all that dust and all that stuff. I wanted to really bring you back there. And I don't know if there were a lot of artists before. I mean, there were, were people like Charles Knight who certainly did that. I don't know. I just, I wanted to, I can't really claim to be original on that score either, but I just really tried hard to put you back in time among all the dust, among all the noise, I wanted you to imagine the noise. I did two pachycephalosauruses colliding. In that scene, they're kicking up a lot of dust, and they're also one of them is almost falling on the photographer. So, <laughs> I, so <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I've got to say, John, I think your dinosaur art actually was hugely in influential on a fellow by the name of Steven Spielberg, who called you one day and said, yeah, "Hey, I want some help true. in this film," yep. and so you moved the you moved the needle in a big way. And I think it was your artwork where it really was that, like it was a photograph from uh, the Mesozoic. You pushed it that far to take it to that, that hyper-realism that got people's attention. You did that painting of Deinonychus, that pack, this was for National Geographic, pack taking down the iguanodont, right. but it's that sunlight, everything about it, and they are ripping into this beast. And I can just see that that lit, you know, that part of the is, flesh is peeling off yeah, from where their first know, attack. I mean, it is brilliant. It's no, brilliant. So I really got to say, I think you moved the needle on that. Yeah. And so with hominins, hominins so what do you think? Yeah. Uh, okay. With hominins, I'm trying to take the, the science and the art of reconstructing them to the next level, if that can be done. And, and to do that, I'm doing all these dissections and all that. I don't know. I guess my aim is that I want you to see these things as living breathing beings. And I want that face to be really close to the face that once looked out on the landscape. So if I want to do that, I have to do a lot of homework. It shows. Well, thank you. Well, I... and, and you know, what I noticed is that, you know, Lucy is so short, you have her, you have all your hominins at the height that they would be standing in the right. Smithsonian yeah, there. The so hall. Lucy is looking up yeah. at you. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, thank you. This took almost 30 years of your life. Yep. And, and you you're holding this, up a book there called The Lost Anatomies. What is Lost Anatomies? Uh, why do you call it The Lost Anatomies? Well, I could have called it Lost Anatomies Found, couldn't I? 
but that was too long. <laughs> and these are these yeah. are these are anatomies. I mean, most of those pictures involve soft tissue anatomy that's been lost to time. So that's basically what that's all about. Well, this has been fantastic, yeah. John. Really well, great. Good talking with you guys, John Gertie. It has been truly an honor to have you on the show here with David and I. You're the man. You're the human. <laughs> Anyways, thanks so much, man. Oh, thank you. It's been great. And I don't know if you know, but Ray is your biggest fan. He he was like a little 14-year-old girl before we started this interview. So uh... <laughs> way back in the Pleistocene, I was. Yeah. But anyways, thanks, John. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, John. Thank you so much. Great. Well, that was wonderful. I bet you you were like a, a pig in... Pig in the stuff there. Anyways, I was enjoying the heck out of myself there. Thank you uh, for having him on. And uh, you you knew about him, but you didn't know about him. Yeah, you know, you'd seen his true. stuff. Yeah, so. yeah. I grew I grew up with him as an adult. Yeah. It was his art that blew me away because, as he said, he depicts he depicted dinosaurs running and with you know dust in the air and. And if you look at the dinosaur heresies photo, that's the one you'll see in the episode notes, the picture of the uh, Styracosaurus fighting the... It's not a T-Rex. Despletosaurus. Despletosaurus. Despletosaurus, Despletosaurus. What the hell is a Despletosaurus? It's not It's before the T-Rex. It's a Tyrannosaur, Dave. Is this a Mesozoic or is this Cretaceous? It's earlier in the Cretaceous. So T-Rex shows up at the end of the Cretaceous. Right. A Um, few million years before. Got it. But you're looking up as though you're a human size, looking up at these giant dinosaurs fighting. So, And we did learn, and I learned that the the rumors were true. He had done sculptures and then lit them and then studied every angle and then went out to the baseball field to get dust. And that was a great story with him and his underwear and the dust and his friend like, what? Anyways. But yeah, John Gertie, major, major dude in the field of paleo art and uh, and our human origins. And I like the early on, uh, he knew which lane to stay in when he was doing science. Yeah. You know, yeah. Didn't let that art muse take over as where I'm just all over the place. I'm a mess. I'm a mess, Dave. No, no, you are fun, Ray. You you love the humor. You love the joke. You love the pun and your art can be anatomically perfect and other kind times of, it's nowhere comical. near it's nowhere fun. near Dude, but uh, other what time does it's comical and fun and that is why you are well that's what i try to do with my art is just make yeah. it engaging and get things across to people quickly yeah. at a glance and see the humor in it but but yeah if there ever was a guy that gave us a glimpse into what the prehistoric past was, was really like, looked it's, like it's, it's like, john yeah, yeah yeah and uh like I said, uh, going to his studio, seeing this, the corpses of apes all over the place and skulls <laughs> and wax molds and stuff. It's pretty extraordinary. And uh, yeah, a real honor to have John on. Yeah. Well, so, you can see all his art on his page at uh, www.paleonerds.com and uh, along with all our other episodes that we've interviewed some incredible people. And you're looking at getting someone who is an expert on these human symbols from the Neolithic. Yeah, the beginning beginning of Of art art and language and symbols, using symbols to communicate quickly. It was interesting that John was alluding to some kind of, you know, the culture that was spreading there at the end of our talk. And some of it may have been artwork. They're showing each other artwork. So we shall see. Okay, Ray. 
Hey, man. Well, uh, it's summertime here in the rainforest. I'm enjoying the heck out of it up here in lovely Ketchikan, Alaska, where I'm going to say goodbye to you there, Dave. Well, I'm going to say goodbye from the hot and dry Ojai Valley, where temperatures are expected to reach 105 degrees today. You know, I, I keep thinking of, uh, you know, the tourists coming here are not really uh, tourists. They are climate refugees. <laughs> Getting on the ship. Take us anywhere else. Yeah. Cool Alaska. So anyways, yeah, there's lots of them down at the old Soho Coho down the hill here. I'm going to go check up on that. And, All right. Uh, Sell some t-shirts and we'll see Sell you on the next episode of Paleo Nerds. Paleo Nerds. All right. Over and out, man. See ya. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. <laughs>